Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an analysis of the latest charges against Donald Trump in a 98-page indictment which includes 19 defendants with Trump facing 13 charges brought last night by Fannie Lewis, the DA in Atlanta. Joining us is a leading criminal defense attorney who represented Rudy Giuliani and turned down representing Trump. John Sale, who served as an assistant special Watergate prosecutor under special prosecutors Archibald Cox and Leon Jaworski, and was included in Nixon's Saturday Night Massacre. He was the chief prosecutor in U.S. versus Fedorenko, a civil denaturalization proceedings against a World War II guard at the Nazi death camp at Treblinka, Poland. Then we'll speak with an expert on election law, which is at the center of Trump's criminal racketeering charges to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia. Joining us is Richard Hassan, professor of law and political science at the University of California, Los Angeles. He is a nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance regulation, and is the co-author of a leading casebook on election law. He's the author of a number of books, including The Voting Wars, Plutocrats United, the Justice of Contradictions and Election Meltdown. And his latest book is Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. And we'll discuss his latest article at Slate, The Biggest Difference Between the Georgia Indictment and the January 6th Indictment. Then finally, we'll explore the real-world consequences of Trump's incitement to violence as lone wolf MAGA fanatics like the police chaplain from Illinois who attacked the Georgia election worker Ruby Freeman act out against those Trump singles out for abuse, with Fox News and right-wing media, the echo chamber, vilifying and demonizing. Joining us is Barbara Walter, a professor of political science and raw chair in Pacific International Relations at the University of California, San Diego. She served on the CIA advisory panel Political Instability Task Force and is the author of How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. And yesterday, her new TED Talk, is the U.S. headed for another civil war, was posted. And joining us now is John Sale, a leading criminal defense attorney who served as an assistant special Watergate prosecutor under special prosecutors Archibald Cox and Leon Jaworski and was included in President Nixon's Saturday Night Massacre and in U.S. versus Fedorenko. He was the chief prosecutor in a civil denaturalization proceeding against a World War II guard at the Nazi death camp at Treblinka and he is an opinion contributor to The Hill. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Sale. Thank you. So, John, the indictments came down last night late. Uh, they were expected on Tuesday, but they rushed them through the last, inter- last witness interviews and voted late into the night and have issued uh, Fanny Willis, the DA in in uh, Georgia has issued a 98-page indictment with 19 defendants and 13 charges against Trump, and they are supposed to surrender voluntarily on uh, before at noon on Friday. Do you expect your former client, Rudy Giuliani, who you represented in the second uh, impeachment trial, will he show up along with the others? Well, I'm not representing him, but I expect sure. everybody. I expect everybody will surrender on or before next Friday at noon. Uh, I think there'll be some logistical discussions with the security people and with the court and with the prosecutor's office, but uh, it's better than the alternative. The alternative is 
their arrest warrants, which they're not having executed, and they're giving them, I guess what the prosecutor calls the courtesy of allowing them to voluntarily surrender. Well, it's it's extraordinary to have that many defendants, right? I mean, Fanny Wills was last last night. Are you going to try them all at once? And she said, yes. How do you try 19 people? You could barely fit them into a courtroom. Well, they could uh, go to the Atlanta Falcons football stadium and fit them in. <laughs> it, it is a, a little bit disingenuous to say that she intends to try them all together. But uh, on the other hand, it's a, they're appropriately joined. But that doesn't mean that they won't be, the legal term is severed for a variety of reasons. Of the 19, maybe one or two or three of them will be dismissed out by the court for a variety of legal reasons. Uh, there's a lot of, there's going to be a lot of pressure for some of them to make deals. If that happens, those will be eliminated. So maybe it'll become a more manageable number. But trial, trying 19 people at once, uh, it, it just, it's more than unimaginable. It can't happen. I mean, if each one had, for a case of this magnitude, two lawyers, uh, and do the arithmetic, and I don't think there's a courtroom big enough to accommodate even the defendants and their lawyers. But could they break them up into groups for the various different uh, uh, crimes that they're indicted for? For example, the fake election people could be in one group? Well, it really would take, this. the indictment is as it stands, and it would take motions on behalf of probably some of those defendants, which they're going to make. I mean, they're going to make a variety of motions for separate. Some of them are going to say, hey, uh, I'm only charged in certain counts, and it's just unfair that some of the other evidence is going to brush off on me, no matter what the jury's told. Others are going to say, hey, we have antagonistic defenses with some of the people seated at the same side of the courtroom with us, and we should have separate trials. And on behalf of former President Trump, there are a lot of motions he'll make, but one of them will be, I have an advice of counsel defense. I acted in good faith on behalf of my lawyers, and now you've indicted those lawyers. So they're going to be sitting at counsel table. They're going to have a Fifth Amendment privilege. So I can't now I can't call them to testify on my behalf. So that's an unfair due process violation. So somehow we have to separate those cases and try them separately. So I don't. 19 people are not going to be tried together. Well, there are 41 counts and 22 counts related to forgery or false documents and statements, eight counts related to soliciting or impersonating public officers, three counts related to influencing witnesses, three counts related to election fraud and defrauding the state, three counts related to computer tampering, one count relating to racketeering, and one count related to perjury. Do we know in the last case, perjury, who that might refer to? I don't have the indictment in front of me, but I think, uh, yes, I think it's specified in the indictment. But they, have, they, but they have one thing in common, all of the counts. They all involve a conspiracy to change the results of an election. And it in, charges everything from the use of false electors to unlawfully accessing voting machines. Uh, they even try to humanize this by involving the Fulton County election workers, the mom and her daughter, Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss with the threats and harassment that they underwent. So it's, it takes in the kitchen sink. But there are a couple of dramatic differences between Jack Smith's case involving the same thing, which is overturning the election, and this case. Jack Smith's case is clearly charges only Donald Trump. 
the other, and six unindicted co-conspirators, which means they're not charged. And that's designed so it'll go to trial within our lifetimes or seriously, or before the election. This case, it's, although the DA said she anticipates a trial or ask for a trial within six months, there's no way that's going to happen. But, but it, it's being said that this is the case that Donald Trump fears the most. And I can't get inside his head, but I think that's probably right. Uh, first of all, if, if he's elected president, which is not crazy, he cannot pardon himself in a Georgia state case. Also, although there's a Republican governor, Georgia is one of the few states in which the governor does not have the power to issue clemency. There is there's an interesting statute that the Georgia Republican-controlled legislature passed that goes into effect in a matter of weeks. That it, it, They have to appoint a commission, which they haven't done yet, but it gives them the power to remove a district attorney. Uh, now, nobody's talking about that right now, but uh, Mr. Trump is going to look for every possible way to try and deal with this case, including trying to remove it to federal court in, in Atlanta, which there is a statute which does provide for that, but it's up to a judge. He tried to do that in New York with the hush money case, and it was removed to federal court. The federal judge sent it right back. And what it takes is that that during for a federal officer like a president, if it involves something that he did in the course of his duties as president, it can be removed for federal court. But I think it's a losing argument because committing a fraud would not be within the scope of his duties, but that'll be litigated. So, so we shall see. But do you really think that they could get away with a, something so blatant as trying to do an end run around Fannie Willis by having the Georgia Republican-controlled legislature sort of put her out of business? Depends on public opinion. Uh, there are just countless people who believe that the election was stolen who support Donald Trump. He's by far the front runner in the Republican Party. So it really depends on on public opinion. Uh, but let me say that this RICO statute, which is very, very broad, it was originally drafted by a law professor who had been with the Department of Justice named Robert Blakey. And I actually almost went to work with him back in when he was at Cornell Law School and he ran what was called the Organized Crime Institute, and he had asked me to come as the executive director. And this statute was designed for organized crime, for the mob, for the mafia cases. And I remember a, one use, federal statute, and one interesting use of it was in the 80s, it, there was an indictment in New York, federal indictment against the five crime families, and they called it the commission. And some of the allegations in the indictment actually went back to things that allegedly happened in Sicily in the 1890s. Now, this Georgia statute is even broader. Uh, and it, although it wasn't designed for political cases, the language applies. And the language applies, and it charges Donald Trump as the head of a sprawling criminal enterprise and similar to a mafia uh, enterprise. And the statute works. And this district attorney has successfully prosecuted it under this statute. But with the teacher's case that involved this, it took six months to try. So this case uh, is going to take six months or more if it's ever tried. 
So I don't see this case being tried before the election. And I think that's why President Trump, former President Trump, fears it the most. You've served as Rudy Giuliani's lawyer. When was that and what was the case? I represented uh, Mayor Giuliani during one of the Trump impeachment inquiries, the Adam Schiff Intel House Intelligence Committee inquiry. I see. And, but that was the extent of my that was the extent of my engagement. And I'm not I'm not representing him in connection with uh, any ongoing criminal investigations. Well, it would seem that he's in a certain amount of trouble in Georgia, don't you think? And Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman went down to Georgia and met with state senators and urged them to disregard the election results. And what's your sense then of what kind of jeopardy? Because Rudy Giuliani sort of made a, uh, something of an apology to the two, the mother and daughter election workers who he had accused of doing all kinds of uh, shenanigans, which was clearly uh, untrue. Well, I don't talk about former clients. It's just I don't consider that ethical. But I can talk. There's so much more to talk about. But I can talk generally. Yeah. I mean, generally, if we put Mr. Giuliani aside and if we start off with the very Constitution that former President Trump suggested be suspended, protects everybody who is uncharged, of course, but even those who are charged, who are presumed innocent. And uh, Jack Smith points that out on the few occasions he speaks in public. But of course... I've spoken about these things so often, and I still, every time I do it, I can't believe it, that we are talking about a former president of the United States who's under four separate criminal indictments. James Comey, the former FBI director, when Mr. Trump was indicted the first time, tweeted, this is a good day for America. And I think that's dead wrong. I think it's a solemn, sad day. The whole, I think our courts are on trial, our democracy is on trial, and the whole world is watching us. But I mean, generally... If the allegations are proved to be true, regardless of who is held accountable, you're talking about an attempt to steal a free and fair election. And if that, if people are not held accountable, then our whole system is in great danger. Well, the danger could well come from almost a call to arms at the Iowa State Fair by Representative Matt Gates standing next to President, former President Trump where he said that force is needed to bring about change in Washington, D.C. And well, Matt, Congressman Gates is from the great state of Florida, where I live and practice law. That was a very unfortunate, inflammatory remark. Peter Navarro, who worked in the Trump White House, recently said that if Trump is prosecuted again, there could be civil war. Those are very scary remarks. They are probably protected by the First Amendment. But we cannot let our justice system be influenced by mob rule. So we just have to say we're living in dangerous times. There are real-world consequences, aren't there? Are there not, John Sale, in this, in as much as the federal judge in Washington is getting protection from the U.S. Marshals, the DAs in both Georgia and in, in, in Manhattan are getting bodyguards and protection. They've been, they've been getting massive amounts of death threats. So... Well, this is happening I mean, to the legal Trump, profession, isn't it? Well, well, Mr. Trump said a way back that if he's charged in New York, there will be death and destruction. And what I'm not concerned about incidents around the courthouse. I think that we've demonstrated in the last federal indictments, law enforcement had two or three days notice and there was just minor crowds, peaceful protesting. What I am concerned about is some one off like after the Mar-a-Lago case 
somebody shot up the FBI building in Cincinnati. I mean, those are the type of things that these type of comments, they bring out the crazies. They bring out the people who are just looking for an excuse to commit violence. Uh, and it's, we just have to be on our guard. I mean, we are just, these are perilous times, as I said. But Judge Chutkin in uh, the Washington, D.C. Uh, insurrection case has warned Trump and his lawyers of uh, Trump to behave himself and to not inflame things and not to turn it into a carnival. Do you think he can restrain himself? I, I understand that he approached you to represent him at, at, at one point. Well, he, yeah, he did. I, I'm not sure whether or not he can restrain himself. So what Judge Chutkin did, I thought, was creative and genius by rather than threatening to the usual remedies, hold him in contempt, put him in jail, which other people, that would happen to anybody else, to talk about the what's the worst case for Mr. Trump to have a case tried quickly. So I think she said something about if there are more inflammatory threats, I'm just going to have to accelerate the trial so we don't taint the jury pool. And although that was, I thought, very intelligent, I mean, creative, as I said, but I don't think it works. Every defendant, Mr. Trump is a defendant. In a courtroom, he's not the former president. He is Mr. Trump, a defendant, is entitled to effective assistance of counsel. Effective. I stress that. And in the case in Washington, D.C., there are over three million documents that are just being turned over, including classified documents that go through the classified, the the SEPA statute, those time periods. So there really has to be a reasonable period of time before that case can be tried. So I'm not, I think the judge's very well-intentioned comment may may be a paper tiger, but something's got to be done because there's a court order that's being flaunted, and I think what he's doing is he's testing the judge, and he's like poking the bear. But how much is he going up to the brink of illegality there? I mean, he he unleashes tirades against the DA in in New York and and even showed a picture of himself with a baseball bat next to to a photo of the Manhattan DA, and he's made also similar... He's also leveled similar attacks against Fannie Willis in, in Atlanta. Oh, nobody is immune from those attacks. And it's, a, it, you know, our First Amendment is a dual-edged sword. I mean, it protects speech, but it's something which, you know, if, it, where does it cross the line? And I think he's, he's testing that also. But what, what can you do? I mean, we've, there's no playbook. You really can't. I mean, you can, but how can you really put the former president of the United States, together with the Secret Service detail, are you going to really put them in a lockup and put them in custody? I mean, there comes a point where there's nothing else but that. But that could prompt real civil disturbances. So I don't, I don't know the answer. I don't know how you control it. But I think you have to. I think a good question is, what do his lawyers do about it? I mean, I think his lawyers are in a very difficult situation because he's got some good lawyers now. They're honorable people. I'm sure, although, you know, I have no knowledge of this, I'm sure they've had a a heart-to-heart talk with him. And then he goes and does what he wants. So at what point does a lawyer say, I don't want any part of this anymore? Every lawyer has to decide that for him or herself. And why did you turn down his request for you to represent him, Trump? Well, at the time, I I was asked to represent him after the Mar-a-Lago search last fall. And I counted there were... 12 or 13 Department of Justice lawyers working full-time on 
the various investigations. And I am, uh, either, well, I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse, but I have a very busy law practice. Uh, I'm a, a major law firm. And I just, I would have had to just suspend my practice. So it just wasn't an option. So that was, I didn't mean to sound pretentious. It's like, oh, I'm too uh, busy to represent Trump. It's just that I just had too many obligations. But then when I've been asked numerous times, do I have any regrets? As recently as two or three weeks ago, my answer was the trial lawyer in me has, has some regrets because without engaging in hyperbole, it's the biggest case in the world, uh, without any doubt. But I've said it just isn't for me without going any further. I can stress that now. I have absolutely no regrets uh, because of what we see going on now, threatening prosecutors, name-calling, threatening judges. That just is a, that's a slap in the face of the rule of law, and my whole professional career is devoted to honoring the rule of law. So I have no regrets. And it wasn't a case of uh, being worried about getting paid. I understand that John Loro, his current uh, lawyer, uh, demanded $3 million up front? Well, I don't know about that, but the lawyer who accepted the task when I turned it down, it's been reported publicly that he was paid $3 million. That's Chris Kyes. Now, I've read that publicly. You know, I have no personal knowledge of that. But, you know, the money did not come from Mr. Trump. Right, it came from the from political action committee that's supposed to be about campaigns, right. not about. Right. Well, yeah. Well, I mean that's 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 where the funds came from. Right. So, uh, so, so payment was not was not an issue. So, but you know, a lawyer should be well paid. I mean, this is a major undertaking. But but it everybody, I just wasn't going to do it. The price didn't even matter. Right. But there's a very different jury pool in Washington D.C. compared to. Florida, right? And in fact, former President Trump is just after his third indictment on his way out of Washington. He he digressed somewhat and attacked Washington D.C. itself and said it was dirty and filthy and full of graffiti. And then his lawyers called for a change of venue to West Virginia, which is ninety three percent white, whereas Washington D.C. is forty five percent black. So, what do you think Trump is up to there? And do you think there's there's a higher bar in Fl- Florida with the jury pool, largely in an area which is, I think, pretty pro-Trump, is it not? Yeah, well, I, I'm actually, I practice all over the country, so I have a good feel for this. In Florida, the case is in our Fort Pierce division, which is about an hour's drive north of, of Palm Beach, and it's a pro-Trump red area. Washington, D.C. is just the opposite. So what the Trump lawyers will do, undoubtedly, is a very legitimate, appropriate thing is they will make a motion to change venue and they'll have studies and they'll have demographic reports. But what the law is, is that the only way you see if you can get a fair jury is you try. And you probably know that you're not going to you're not going to get 12 jurors who are going to say, I don't know anything about the case. I never heard about it, never read about it, because if that were the case, they'd live on Mars. What you have to have is jurors who will take an oath, raise their right hand and say, notwithstanding what I've heard or read or seen on television, I can put that aside and decide this only on the law and the facts that I hear in this courtroom. And Donald Trump is entitled to a fair trial. The Sixth Amendment says you're entitled to a trial by an unbiased jury. And as I said, you just the only way you find out is by trying and see if the judge and the lawyers together can get 12 people and some alternates. 
who will say they can be fair. And of course, West Virginia is ridiculous. Uh, I mean, it's unlikely the venue will be changed, but it, on the slight chance it is, it wouldn't be West Virginia. But let me point out, if you remember the Oklahoma City bombing case, uh, right. that horrible case, well, the venue there was moved from Oklahoma City to Denver. And the government did not object to the motion to change venue. And guess who was the supervisor? He didn't try it. The supervising attorney for the government who Mary agreed Callen. to change venue. That's right. Right. That's right. Yeah. With all that said and done, I think the case that that the case will remain in Washington D.C. I think the Trump lawyers will also move to recuse Judge Chutkin because of some of the things she's said and done in other cases. I think that'll be denied, and they have a number of legitimate defenses, and they'll be played out like any litigation. Do you think the chances of prosecuting Trump are greater in Washington D.C. than in Florida? Well, they're different cases. I mean, I think the, the Florida case is an easier case. Uh, the Florida case, when he first got the subpoena in Florida, if they had just complied, or if there were things he thought shouldn't be turned over, if they had just listed them in a log and said, here's the reason they shouldn't be turned over, that case never would have been brought. That case was all about obstruction, lying to his lawyers, hiding documents. That's why it's distinguishable from President Biden having documents, Vice President Pence having documents, That case is all about obstruction. And, I mean, his own lawyer, the judge found, the judge in Washington found crime fraud, we call it. So it's going to break the attorney-client privilege, and he's going to be testifying that that his client, Donald Trump, lied to him and hid the documents from him. And uh, I guess it doesn't get any more serious than that. And I I can't see how the government could ever put people in jail like Reality Winner and others under the Espionage Act if they don't set an example with this. Would you agree? Well, yeah, other people definitely have gone to jail. Uh, but, you know, the the man who was the head of, of FTX, the big alleged uh, crypto scam. Right. So he's he's been out on bail or bond, what you call it, in different places. And he's been allegedly threatening witnesses. And the judge, federal judge, just revoked his bond and ordered him to jail for interfering with witnesses. Well, looks like Donald Trump is trying to do the same thing. But, uh, you know, he's the former president, so we'll have to see what the judge does about that. Every day he tweets or goes on Truth Social now, you know, as I said, I think he's tempting the judge to take some action. Well, John Sale, I thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your, your unique insight into this case and these cases. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with John Sale, who's a leading criminal defense attorney who served as an assistant special Watergate prosecutor under special prosecutors Archibald Cox and Leon Jaworski and was included in former President Nixon's Saturday Night Massacre and in U.S. versus Fedorenko. He was the chief prosecutor in a civil denaturalization proceeding against a World War II guard at the Nazi death camp Treblinka. And he is an opinion contributor to The Hill. We can take a brief station break and we'll be back speaking with an expert on election law, which is at the center of Trump's criminal racketeering charges to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Richard Hassan, Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Los Angeles. He's a nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance regulation, and is the co-author of a leading casebook on election law. And he's the author of a number of books, including... The Voting Wars, Plutocrats United, The Justice of Contradictions, and Election Meltdown. And his latest book is Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. And his latest, uh, uh, and his latest article at Slate is The Biggest Difference Between the Georgia Indictment and the January 6th Indictment. Welcome to Background Briefing, Richard Hassan. Great to be back with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And you're you're arguing here in in terms of this latest indictment, where you have a ninety-eight page indictment with nineteen defendants, uh, with thirteen charges against Trump alone. That race is is what makes it different. Is that essentially the the, the crux of your article? Well, there are lots of things that make it different, as you mentioned. Uh, the, there are numerous defendants. There are many charges, including this big racketeering charge. But I think the most significant difference between the two is how race is front and center in the sprawling allegations in the Georgia state case compared to the more uh, surgically targeted federal case that I think was crafted to be as streamlined as possible to get to trial before the 2024 elections. So race, though, is a glaring subtext, a dog whistle in what Trump has been saying to his base about these charges and these various uh, uh, cases against him just after he got indicted in uh, in Washington, D.C. recently for his third indictment. He went on camera and said, went on a tirade against Washington, D.C. for being dirty and filthy and graffiti-filled. And it was inescapable that what he was arguing was that this is a sort of black city, and then he turns around and wants to be have the venue moved to West Virginia, which is 93% white. And it's no accident, I think, that uh, that the prosecutors in, in these various cases, Judge Chutkin is black, the prosecutor in in Fannie Willis in, in Georgia, and uh, the DA in in Manhattan, along with the New York AG, they're all African American. So, isn't this a, uh, it hasn't the dog whistle been howling for some time in all of these cases? Oh, sure, it has, and it certainly has been the subtext, but. In the Georgia indictment, it's moved from the subtext to the text. And so there's an extensive discussion in there about how Trump and his attorney, Rudy Giuliani, both uh, targeted Ruby uh, Friedman, who was a Fulton County election worker. She and uh, her daughter were accused uh, without any evidence by Trump and Giuliani of stuffing ballot boxes, of engaging in scams and frauds and turning the election from uh, a Trump win into a Biden win. Uh, They were demonized. They have since faced threats and harassment. They've had to sue Rudy Giuliani, who's essentially uh, not contested the charges that not only did he lie, he knew he was lying at the time that he said it. And these black workers uh, were part of the story that Trump told about how 
the election was stolen. And it fit in with his broader theme in the Slate piece I linked to one of Trump's tweets where he talks about massive voter fraud in Detroit, Milwaukee, Atlanta, and Philadelphia, all cities with large black populations. It's it's very clear here that this case is seeking to vindicate the rights of African-Americans who essentially would have been disenfranchised had Trump's scheme to turn himself from the election loser into the election winner would have succeeded. So do you think that this case then will put a human face on on the on Trump's machinations and Rudy Giuliani's and John Eastman's machinations in as much as they're real human beings who have been victimized? I, I mean, to some extent, I think it worked in the E. Jean Carroll case in New York that she was could see her and she get, presented herself in a way that was quite compelling. And I think it made a difference uh, so uh, the the fact of, that Ruby Freeman and her daughter were so terrorized in the indictments, in fact, it, it mentions that a police chaplain from Illinois showed up at the Freeman home and threatened uh, Ruby Freeman. I mean, what do we know about this police chaplain from Illinois? He was just some MAGA guy that got riled up uh, and motivated by Trump. Well, I don't know any more than what's in the indictment, but the indictment also talks about how a publicist for Kanye West tried to befriend Freeman, claiming that she was a crisis advisor and was trying to get Freeman to admit to some machinations involving the counting of the ballots in Fulton County. I mean, this was a full court press uh, against this woman. And I remember during the January 6th committee hearings with the House, that Freeman's testimony was among the most moving things that we heard. And if the case in Georgia goes to trial, it is a trial that is almost certainly going to be televised, uh, because Georgia generally does allow televising such proceedings. And the human drama, I'm sure, will be part of the story that the prosecutor will want to tell. This wasn't just some antiseptic attempt to try to read the Constitution's 12th Amendment and the Electoral Count Act and come up with some kind of legal manipulation of the results. It was a real attempt to disenfranchise voters. And I think that's what comes across uh, when you read this indictment. The in, the indictment under the uh, RICO statutes, which I understand is, is a tool that prosecutors prefer, and I guess defense attorneys don't particularly like, in effect, doesn't it put Trump on the same level as a kind of leader of a street gang or the head of a mafia crew, that he's the boss and that they're, in, 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 in the case of a mafia crew, you know, dealing drugs and breaking kneecaps or in the case of a street gang, dealing drugs and stealing cars and, and robbing people. In this case, Trump is stealing votes. Is that, I think, a, f- a fair analogy? I do think that's a fair analogy, but it's important to point out that although RICO charges uh, originated against organized crime figures, they've been used in many other contexts, including by Willis in Georgia against uh, a group of teachers that were charged with manipulating standardized test results uh, in order to show that uh, they were doing a better job than they actually were. Uh, It's not uncommon for 
large-scale conspiracies now to be charged as RICO. And so, so I don't think that there's anything that's all that unique about that. Uh, but when you read the indictment, it's over 90 pages, page after page after page of all the steps that Trump and his many co-conspirators are alleged to have engaged in uh, to try to turn himself from a loser into a winner. And it's it's a compelling story that I expect Willis is going to try to tell, not just to a jury, but to the American people. So how central then do you think the what Trump referred to as the perfect phone call with Brad Raffensperger that we all heard? Uh, just find me 11,780 votes. I think that that is probably... That alone could have been charged against Trump and made a really compelling case. You remember that we've got that on tape. The jurors will be able to hear Trump attempt to uh, threaten and cajole and flatter and trying everything possible to get Raffensperger to ignore his constitutional oath and to uh, falsify election records. I mean, that alone is so damning and could have been the basis for a, a charge against Trump that, uh, if proven, should send him to jail. So what do you think then is going to happen on Friday at noon where Trump is supposed to show up in person or get arrested along with the other 18? Uh, I believe that uh, he's been given till a week from Friday. Uh, I, I would expect that he is going to find a way to voluntarily turn himself in and not be a fugitive, uh, you know, have a warrant out for him. Uh, so uh, I expect that he will come in. Uh, unlike the federal courts, which have been uh, very protective of Trump, uh, no mugshot, letting him come in the back door, we'll have to see what accommodations, if any, are going to be made for Trump. And remember, there are 18 other defendants in this case. Uh, they're all going to be coming through. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is sort of the rogues gallery of those who try to overturn the 2020 election. So it will be something to see Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman and Sidney Powell, all of these characters that we've we've heard about. Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff, they're all going to have to come in and uh, uh, at least go through the initial booking process. So. This is quite significant, even aside from Trump, that there's a chance that these other people uh, will be put to the test and their actions uh, judged uh, in terms of whether or not they've broken the law by a jury of average citizens. But just in closing, it's a pretty unwieldy courtroom. You wouldn't have uh, <laughs> a, the bench space, let alone uh, the ability of a room to co accommodate 19 defendants, right? So they're going to have to break them up into groups, right? Like the, you know, the fake elector plot, one group, etc. Is that, is that how I, uh, yeah. you predict it? I don't know. I mean, I was surprised at the press conference late uh, last night when Willis said she intended to try them all together. It does seem unwieldy. It also seems like it could significantly delay the trial because it would then just take one defendant with uh, a reason for delay for everything to be pushed back. And you're going to have one jury deciding all of these charges against all these defendants. It's just very hard for me to see how this can happen with any kind of speed. 
given uh, the complexity of the case, the number of defendants and the number of charges. And the fact that there are other cases as well against Trump, right? Yes, he's got a, he's got a full uh, court schedule aside from trying to run for president. Right. Well, just in closing, though, Rick Hassan, you mentioned uh, this being a state trial and the Georgia law is such that the, t- the trial will be televised, which is certainly, a, a, I think, a big plus for America, for the American people, since so many of them are, uh, are not getting news that's in any way realistic. The other aspect of it being a state trial is that Trump can't be pardoned or can't pardon himself, right? That's right. He only has power to uh, pardon federal crimes, and there's a question of whether he could pardon himself for federal crimes. But he has no power to pardon himself for state crimes. In addition, the governor of Georgia does not have the power to pardon people for violation of Georgia law. Uh, There's actually a board that gets to decide, and as I understand it, you have to wait until five years after a conviction before there could be a pardon. And there's mandatory jail time if the RICO charges are proven. So Trump is in a bit more of a box than uh, he is uh, when it comes to the federal charges that he is facing as well. Well, Richard Hassan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's been a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Richard Hassan, who's a professor of law and political science at the University of California, Los Angeles. He's a nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance regulation and is the co-author of a leading casebook on election law and is the author of The Voting Wars, Plutocrats United, The Justice of Contradictions and Election Meltdown. And his latest book is Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. And his latest article slate is The Biggest Difference Between the Georgia Indictment and the January 6th Indictment. We're going to take a brief station break back exploring the real-world consequences of Trump's incitement to violence. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Barbara Walter, who's a professor of political science and the raw chair in Pacific International Relations at the University of California, San Diego, where her current research focuses on the behavior of rebel groups in civil wars, including inter-rebel group fighting, alliances, and strategic use of propaganda and extremism. A life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, she serves on the CIA Advisory Panel Political Instability Task Force, and helps run the award-winning blog Political Violence at a Glance and is the author of How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. Welcome to Background Briefing, Barbara Walter. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Well, thank you, Barbara. And just over the weekend, standing next to Donald Trump at a rally at the Iowa State Fair, Congressman Matt Gates said, 
Mr. President, I cannot stand these people that are destroying our country. They are opening our borders. They are weaponizing our federal law enforcement against patriotic Americans who love this nation as we should. And then he went on to say, but we know that only through force do we make any change in a corrupt town like Washington, D.C. So many are seeing that as a call to arms. In other words, an incitement of a civil war in America. How How does it strike you? It strikes me as the hyperbolic words of somebody who knows that his team is losing um, and also somebody who's quite naive and self-interested and doesn't really understand or take into account um, the potential implications of his words. So I, I see this as, as someone who's, who's dangerous but also like surprisingly naive and also very self-interested. But the dangerous part is what counts, isn't it? I mean, the, 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 even in, in the indictments that were handed down last night, in the fourth now indictment against Donald Trump from the Georgia District Attorney, there is in the indictments the case of Ruby Freeman and her daughter, who were election workers that were forced into hiding after being assaulted with racist attacks simply for doing their job. But in the indictment, they charge a police chaplain from Illinois for going to the Freeman's home and threatening her and her daughter. So that, to me, is what is at the heart of this problem, isn't it? It only takes one or two people to be influenced by... Trump or Rudy Giuliani and the echo chamber in Fox News that propagates the threats that they make. Yes, it's it's true. Political violence here in the United States is on the rise. It has risen um, fairly consistently and fairly dramatically since 2016. It is driven um, in part by what political scientists call violence entrepreneurs, People like a Matt Gates or even a Donald Trump who see violence as a means to keep themselves in power or to bring themselves back into power. And but it's it's finding resonance with uh, a subset of the American population on the far right, and they're mostly white men who feel like they're losing control of their country, who feel. Um, deep resentment at their loss of status over the last um, few decades and who feel like they're justified, increasingly justified to use whatever means possible to maintain themselves in power. Um, and so your, your example of Matt Gates, um, he, he's a guy who, who just wants power. He doesn't really care about anything else. Um, and he's going to use any strategy to maintain himself in power and, and, but there's a real subset of the American population that is deeply unhappy with the um, direction of the country, who see that the identity of America is changing, and that new identity does not have them at the top of the pyramid. And, and so, so what Matt Gitz says is basically it gives, it gives them justification to not work within the system anymore and to turn to violence if it serves their purposes. So what is the cause and effect when, for example, today 
Donald Trump said in response to these latest indictments. So the witch hunt continues. 19 people indicted tonight, including the former President of the United States, me, by an out-of-control and very corrupt district attorney who campaigned and raised money on I Will Get Trump. And, of course, he's also been attacking the federal judge down in Washington, D.C., who's also African-American. These attacks are relentless. She's been warned by Judge Mm -hmm. Chutkin in Washington, D.C. not to do it, but I don't think he can restrain himself. Do you expect a cause and effect here? Because when you call people corrupt and beyond the pale, isn't that a license to kill, in a sense, if you're sufficiently partisan and feel that you personally are being wronged along with your hero, President Trump? Um, hmm. You know what? When I think about the indictments, they don't worry me as much as the 2024 election. One of the surprising things that we've seen with the, the recent indictments is that MAGA Republicans have not come out and publicly supported Trump the way they did a few years ago. So it's, it's, you're, you're hearing chatter on the internet. You're hearing from, from individuals who are angry about this. You have isolated protesters in front of the courthouse, but you're not seeing a huge coordinated um, uh, uh, grouping of people do this. So Trump is trying everything possible to keep himself out of jail. And if that means he he attacks American democracy, he's going to do that. If that means attacking the justice system, he's going to do that. He is like a desperate narcissist using everything possible to keep himself out of prison and also to get himself back in the White House. He's going to that's just what Donald Trump is going to do. What you really want to look for is how MAGA Republicans are going to react. So far, their reaction has been milder than many people thought. And that's good news. So what I'm focusing on is, okay, what's going to happen in November 2024? Will these indictments help Donald Trump get elected? Will it hurt Donald Trump from getting elected? And I think what we're starting to see with the data is it's going to hurt his election prospects. There's, again, a subset of really passionate Donald Trump supporters, and this is energizing them. Um, But they were going to vote for Donald Trump no matter what. The key is going to be how do these indictments play with independents? They're going to decide the election. And the data are increasingly showing that it's it's turning them off. It's making them less likely to support Donald Trump. So what does that mean? That means that Donald Trump's prospects, if he is the Republican nominee, are are declining. It's going to be harder for him to beat whoever the Democratic candidate is, who's likely to be uh, Joe Biden. If Joe Biden wins in 2024 and Donald Trump is free to have a megaphone to his his supporters, he is going to shout continuously that this second election was stolen from him. And that's going to resonate with them more. That's going to anger them even more than what um, than his calls for violence at this point in time. At this point in time, his passionate followers, believe, you know, they have hope. They have hope that Donald Trump is going to come back into the White House. But when they lose hope, that's when they are more likely to become dangerous. So there's no end in sight then, Barbara. I mean, this is almost like Dracula. How do you, how do you end this nightmare? 
this is a long-term phenomenon, and it's not. it didn't start with Donald Trump. It's not going to end with Donald Trump. The phenomenon that the United States is experiencing right now is a huge demographic shift um, from a white majority country to a white minority country. The United States will be the first white majority country to go through this demographic shift, but all others will eventually follow. Um, and this is going to this is going to take place over the next at least three decades. And what happens in countries that go through large demographic shifts, where a once dominant group is losing power because the identity of their country is changing, um, that those groups tend to become resentful, just like we're seeing here in the United States. They tend to try every means possible. First, legitimately through the system itself, then illegitimately um, through sort of dirty politics. And then, um, you know, some of them will eventually turn to violence to hold on to power. Um, and, and you're seeing that, that same phenomenon here in the United States. And you will have these violence entrepreneurs who will emerge, um, who will take a, advantage of these shifts and the insecurity it creates in these once dominant groups. And they'll use it to their advantage to, to bring themselves to power. And, and they don't really care what the repercussions are for the country. All they care about is whether it catapults them into positions of power and whether they can stay there over time. So, this is going to be a long run um, uh, situation that the United States is in. And even if Donald Trump goes away for whatever reason, there's going to be somebody else who's going to take up the Donald Trump uh, man mantra because they, they see that it works, at least in this particular point in time. So, Barbara Walters, this is almost to suggest that the... Uh, the original civil war where the North won, that the losers have not gone away and that racism is alive and well. So is that to say that at the end of the day that America has to exorcise the demon of racism? Oh, absolutely. You know, the United States has never has never really faced its history of slavery and the repercussions of that head on. It's never had a reckoning with our, um, the way our democracy has been structured to compromise <laughs> with, with um, the South. Um, and, and until we have that reckoning, we are going to fight this battle over and over again. The United States needs to do um, essentially what Germany did after World War II. Germany, uh, you know, as horrible it was, as it was in World War II, it, it, it had a, a, a systematic government-sponsored killing machine. Um, and yet, after it was defeated in war, um, and after it became democratic, um, the Germans did a, a surprisingly good job um, forcing them to face what they had done um, and to to teach it in, in their schools, to write it into their history book, books, to not deny um, the terrible things that they did. And, and with that comes a cleansing. And with that comes the ability to do better in the future. And, and Americans, as, as great as, as America is and as great as Americans um, are, 
we have never done that. And, and in fact, we're going in the opposite direction. And, and if, if you deny, 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 you're setting yourself up to fight that fight over and over again. Well, we're going backwards, and certainly in the state of Florida, with Ron DeSantis yes. changing the history curriculum, where yes. they're teaching kids that slavery was a, was beneficial, yes. uh, and on the job training. So, I guess we've got some heavy lifting to do here, right? Yes, yes. You know, they, we we love to think of of ourselves as exceptional as honorable, as, as models for the rest of the world. And, and in many respects we are, but, but we, as long as we hide sort of the ugly underbelly of, of events in our country, we will never reach our true potential. And, and, you know, I wish for, for America and Americans to have the courage to really face the good with the, with the bad of our history. And, and, you know, human beings are not perfect. Um, we can be truly wondrous and we can be truly evil. And, and unless you, you accept that both are possible, um, you, you know, you can't exercise the, the evil and you can't set up systems to control the evil. Well, here's praying for the better angels, and I thank you for yes. joining us, Barbara Walker. Yes. Thank you very much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Barbara Walter, who's a professor of political science and the Raw Chair in Pacific International Relations at the University of California, San Diego, where her current research focuses on the behavior of rebel groups in civil wars, including inter-rebel group fighting, alliances, and strategic use of propaganda and extremism. A life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, she, she served on the CIA Advisory Panel Political Instability Task Force and is the author of How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.